It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 is the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes in multiple ways. You can interact with us here on the program, 201-939-4513. That is option number one. Option number two, hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So we're going to continue to look ahead to the NFL draft less than a month away. We're going to have two schools on the docket today. First up is going to be Iowa. Then we'll turn our attention to Mississippi State, each school with a notable offensive lineman as well as other talent. So we look forward to that. And then we'll try to squeeze in as many calls and interactions as we can over the course of the program. So the clock is ticking, Paul. Before you know it, we'll have the NFL draft, and today we're going to put uh, two offensive linemen under the microscope, specifically Tyler Linderbaum as well as Charles Cross. Yes, exactly, Lance. And, hey, good news. I did bring the right notebook today. So, like yesterday, I know you were not on the program, but I had forgotten the notebook that had the schools on yesterday's show. <laughs> well, that we must were, have been fun. Well, yeah, because we were scrambling to get in here. Uh, for those of you who who know, uh, you know Bob Popper, the voice of the Giants, does his serious show very often from our same studio, and his show butts up the end of it right up against the beginning of Big Blue Kickoff Live. So we're scrambling as he's trying to get out of his program. We're trying to get into our program. So it's a kind of a a discombobulated situation anyway. And then to make things worse. I realized that I forgot the notebook with the notes for all the prospects that we were to talk about yesterday. <laughs> so it was a mess. And yeah. then one of our guests decided to call me on my cell phone oh, boy. Wow. as we're doing the program, thinking that that's where we had a call instead of the studio line. That, that was so, the call-in number, yes. Yes, yes. It was, uh, it was a very discombobulated, very messy, sloppy, and rough one hour of programming. But, hey, the good news is we're going to be smooth today. Yes. So basically what you're saying is you achieved the triple crown yesterday. You had <laughs> all three things that you possibly couldn't have anticipated go wrong happen simultaneously. Well, the good news is we eventually got all three guests on. We talked about all the prospects that we needed to talk about. And uh, we were able to to navigate through some very rough and choppy waters. The ship did make it home to dock, Lance. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter whether or not it was a bumpy ride or you had to, you know, navigate some choppy waters. All that matters is you arrived home safely. Indeed. That's the bottom line. And like you said, it'll be a little bit more of a smooth operation today. But this is always, once again, an informative type of feel for us because, you know, we get the perspective of individuals that cover these prospects very closely. And considering the Giants are going to be selecting with the fifth and the seventh overall picks, the two names – Linderbaum, maybe a little too high. Most people project him to go middle to the late first round. But Charles Cross is absolutely, Paul, in the conversation Mm -hmm. as a potential option for the Giants with one of those top 10 picks. I don't think there's any doubt. As we get closer and closer to the draft, it's becoming more and more obvious that Cross is the number three guy in this three-player tier. 
Uh, for a lot of the months coming into this uh, offseason, people were saying, no, it's really a two-way race and crosses a deep third. I don't think he's a deep third anymore, Lance. I think the more that people got to watch his tape and the more they saw his workouts, they understand that this guy is – he belongs in that same cluster uh, and makes it a three-way offensive tackle race to see who's going to get picked first and second in the in that position, I should say. Because obviously, I mean, it'd be crazy to think that all three could go one, two, and three in the draft. I don't see that happening. But I do think that all three of those guys will be long gone by the time you get to pick 10. I'm with you. Because you have to anticipate, to your point, there's going to be somebody that takes a defensive lineman. Somebody may move up to grab a quarterback or stay as they are. Somebody's going to spice things up. That usually always takes place, but there's no reason to think that the offensive linemen are still going to be hanging around, specifically those three, once we get into that 10-11 barometer, given the necessity of that position. Specifically, a guy like Cross, who has been a staple at left tackle for each of the last two seasons for Mississippi State, a big pro presence and if you're a team and you think whether that's the missing piece or you've got a young quarterback and now the priority is to protect them you'd be silly not to heavily consider one of these three guys in terms of the top offensive linemen I don't think there's any doubt and you know the word around the NFL and I discussed this with John the other day I heard it uh, first and then a couple of days later he said to me oh you know what I heard and I said I don't know and he said what he said and I was like okay yeah The word around the league is that the New Orleans Saints would very much like to try to get into the top 10 as high as they possibly can because they need to replace Armstead at tackle. They signed Andy Dalton to compete with Winston to take care of their quarterback situation for the season, but they desperately would like to get themselves a plug-and-play tackle, and they're too low to do it, Lance. So they're looking to try to get up as high as they can in that top 10 to get one of those guys. And obviously, you know, the Giants would be a team that they would probably want to talk to. But if I'm the Giants, I certainly don't do anything with the number five because I need to guarantee myself as much as possible to get one of those tackles. Whether or not I'd be willing to move the seven, you and I have talked about it. It would take a godfather offer to do it, but there's no way I'm moving the five, especially when you you believe that the Saints would be coming up to take a tackle. That that means that, you know, at seven – all three could be gone. Well, they lost Teron Armstead, so clearly there's a need for an offensive lineman, as you just noted. But there's some speculation that maybe the reason why they pulled off that trade with the Eagles was to perhaps address another position. Though, I mean, even where they moved up to, what I don't understand is if the logic is that they are interested, let's say, in a quarterback— By moving up into that 16-slot area, you're still not guaranteeing yourself to get the quarterback you really want because somebody could easily take the guy that's first on your board. So it was a bit of a bizarre decision for why the Saints made that trade. I get why the Eagles made that trade. There's no doubt about it that they have multiple picks in the first round. They had three. You gain capital for next year. Completely understand that. It's just a little peculiar to me, Paul, why the Saints would give up a lot in the end, especially a first-round pick for next year where maybe they want to go after a quarterback next year. Jameis is far from a long-term solution. You mentioned they brought in Andy Dalton. He's not necessarily a long-term answer, and Taysom Hill is more of a jack-of-all-trades guy. So I thought that was a little bit interesting in terms of why the Saints made that move compared to the Eagles. And you mentioned Taysom Hill. I was under the understanding from, from someone that he was going to actually be converted into a tight end this year. 
Correct. That's supposedly what they're looking to do. But you know, even if they do convert him, Paul, they're still going to utilize him maybe for a passing play here think, or there. Right? And they're going to run him. I mean, look at what he did against the Giants this past season. <laughs> I know. Runner, right? So, I know. Hey, by the way, rather than uh, than send this through a text message to you, I guess we, we don't need to uh, to be hiding stuff around here. Listeners, uh, the Iowa preview is going to have to be put on hold. Yeah. We just got word from our Iowa guest uh, unavailable personal or family issues that uh, need to be dealt with. So uh, we will not be able to preview Iowa today, but we certainly are hoping to get uh, our Mississippi State correspondent on the line later on. Yeah, and we should have that Mississippi State conversation in about 10 minutes or so, in which we will be able to break down Charles Cross. We're not going to overlook Iowa. We'll just have to reschedule, mm-hmm. and we'll turn our attention to Linderbaum another day. But getting back in the meantime to our draft conversation, which is pertinent because the Eagles are right in the division. So, I mean, I think it certainly relates. I don't know how much you and Jeff maybe talked about the trade, Paul, because I'm sure you had a lot of guests on the other day, but that was obviously the biggest storyline. We're so used to the wheeling and dealing involving notable proven commodities in the NFL, right? So many quarterbacks, but here now we had our first draft trade, and as you were talking about with Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston and Andy Dalton, if you're the Saints right now, and I feel confident in saying I don't think they look at their quarterback depth chart Dennis Allen, who just took over as the head man, and he says, we absolutely know who's going to be under center for the next three to four years, that we can guarantee you that. So that's why, to me, if I'm New Orleans, there's value holding on to that first-round pick in 2023 because everything doesn't go according to plan. You at least protect yourself to still have that first-round pick. Now, the Saints, in fairness, Paul, they scratched the surface. They nearly made the playoffs this past year. So just because they gave up their first-round pick doesn't mean it was going to be high to begin with. They could very well make the playoffs. Their Mm -hmm. defense is still solid. You got some talent around the quarterback position. But by having a first-round pick, you at least give yourself some leeway to move up in the event that you do make the playoffs and you still want to make a move after a quarterback. So that's why, from their standpoint, I was a little surprised. The Eagles, I completely understand it. You have three first-rounders. You could sacrifice one to position yourself for next year, especially if maybe Jalen Hurts doesn't pan out to be the guy that you anticipated. Well, I think what the Eagles did is something that Peter King in particular has already written about twice in the last month, and that is something he thinks the Giants want to do. Split up their first-round picks, try to get a first-rounder next year as a bonus so that you have a hedge against your quarterback. Sure. Jeff and John have been promoting uh, promoting that scenario now for a number of weeks. You and I both see the logic in that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Again, I don't know that I would if I could get two premier players at five and seven, but I do understand the logic behind it. And clearly the Eagles, knowing that they had three first-rounders this year, they were in the best position of anybody to attempt a move like that, and this is now a hedge against Jordan Love, you know, not being... Jalen Hurts, you mean. I mean, yeah. Jalen Hurts. Jordan Love. Uh, Jordan, Love. Yeah. Jalen Hurts. Well, it's another question mark quarterback. I mean, <laughs> it is. It's relevant to the conversation. And there's no doubt. But Philly's not worrying about him. No, I they're not. You that. No, yes. they're not. Uh, this is a hedge on Jalen Hurts, which is, you know, something that obviously makes a lot of sense. 
And I'm completely with you, and you and I have had conversations. I'm not anti-spinning one of the picks off into a first-rounder if you're fortunate enough. I just I think it's challenging in a year where the quarterbacks are not hot commodities, so I think that makes it difficult. And here's the other thing. In comparison to Philadelphia, which you were bringing up, Philly was a little bit lower in terms of their f- three first-rounders, Paul. What well, makes so it I easier think, to deal one? Correct, then. exactly. Whereas the Giants are higher at 5-7, and seven, a much more attractive opportunity to get two potential difference makers. And the other thing that I think differentiates the two teams is I think Philadelphia doesn't have nearly as many question marks on the roster as the Giants do. Meaning the Giants right now, it's not just about the quarterback and trying to solve that and seeing if Daniel Jones pans out. It's also you need help at plenty of other spots. Mm -hmm. And you could do wonders by retaining five and seven. Philadelphia made the playoffs last year. Are they a juggernaut? No. Do they have question marks? Absolutely. But I think they're in a little bit better position across the board with respect to the roster in comparison to the Giants. You know, George Young and Ernie Accorsi always used to say that nothing demoralizes your personnel department and your scouting crew than trading a first-round pick. Because well, especially when you do all that homework, too. Exactly. Leading up to the draft. Yeah. These guys have invested so much blood, sweat, and tears into thinking, okay, we've got this first-round pick. And in this particular case, for the first time in franchise history, the Giants have two in the top ten. I mean, could you imagine the excitement? If you're a Giant scout, the excitement you have as you're going around the country and you're looking at these games and looking at these tapes and meeting these players – the excitement you have thinking, you know what, I'm doing write-ups on guys who could potentially be two premier blue-chip picks. I mean, and then let's just say the Giants do wind up making a deal. And this is why Acorsi and, and, and Young used to say, you, you can't do that to those guys because they put in a time and effort. They've got conviction. You pay them to have conviction. So you you have to take what they say literally because that's that's what you pay them for. So you have to have confidence, belief, and conviction in what they've written up. And if they believe that there's a blue chip guy there and you traded out of that spot, and in this particular case, I'll use the example as the seven because we'll assume the Giants will use the five to take whoever it is that they're going to take. We'll assume that seven would be the one that would be more tradable if they were going to make a deal. Well, how do you think the guys in that room are going to feel if all of a sudden they get the rug pulled out? Guess what, guys? you got somebody at seven who you think is going to be an impact player, who's going to help immediately, a guy who's going to be a blue chipper in this league. But we're going to leave him on the board because we're going to get an extra pick next year. That could be really demoralizing. It's certainly a part of the conversation. Is it what I'm prioritizing, though, in the back of my mind? Oh, Paul, no. no the player executive? is no, the priority. Right? Yeah, the I mean, you always need priority. to think about, and also gaining future assets, which could very well help your team. So you're not going to turn down that opportunity because you could potentially be disappointing scouts. But oh no no no! no I'm, doubt I'm about giving it. you I'm giving no, you no, a behind you, the I know scenes. I know where you were going with that. I'm giving you a yeah, behind sure. the scenes factor that that's Absolutely. an environmental thing within the office. But but you and I both agree if if they got a blue chip impact guy staring them in the face at seven, you got to take him. Yeah, and that's why we use the term conviction more often than not. If everyone in the room is looking at the board and saying 
this guy at seven is too good to pass up, then you pick the player and you don't ask any questions. And you don't then continue to have the coulda, woulda, shoulda conversation. If we would have moved that, what we could potentially do with an extra asset and so forth. You just you can't think like that. You just got to feel good that you studied the player appropriately and you feel that you bring them in, that that player will make a significant impact. And I think the Giants are in a position where they would welcome in easily two top 10 picks because they need those top 10 picks to come in year one at whether it be the same position, various positions, and make their presence felt. And there's certainly the opportunity to do that. It's just if somebody blows you away and all of a sudden has the itchy finger on a quarterback and they're willing to do, for example, I mean, even what New Orleans did. And that's another reason why I thought Philadelphia made a great move. I mean, to get a first-round pick next year and then a second-rounder in 2024 and still retain two first-round picks, I thought from just a value standpoint, at the end of the day, Paul, remember, these trades, we're going to know the true story once we see the actual commodities, Mm -hmm. the players. So it's too early from that standpoint. But from a value standpoint, I think Philadelphia did very well. For Mm -hmm. New Orleans not jumping that high and what they were able to get, I thought this was a very good move for the Philadelphia Eagles perspective. I thought so, too. And ultimately, you know, you and I are of the opinion, again, it's got to be a godfather offer to move. So if they want, if somebody wants to come up to seven and give the Giants the keys to Fort Knox and all of the U.S. mints around the country, okay, fine. But, but short of that, uh, I'm going to stick with the conviction if I've got one on a player and I'm taking them. What I'd love to know, and we could, we could go through these hypotheticals a billion times, and I don't know if the fans even want to consider this, but who would be that player at seven who you would have so much conviction on that you could not make the trade? I mean, is Tevon Walker that guy? Is is Hamilton that guy? Uh, is Cross that guy? Is Thibodeau that guy? Depending upon how far some of these players fall, sure. which, which one of those, which, would Sauce Gardner be that guy? Would, be in the Sting, conversation. would Stingley be yep. that guy? You know, if you have a chance to get one of those guys, would you even think about pulling the trigger or would you say, damn it, I'm slamming my hand on the table and I'm saying we're getting this guy because he's going to be great? I would answer it that there would be hesitation. If a bunch of those guys were still available, there would definitely be hesitation, Paul, on my part. Doesn't mean I'm not listening and it doesn't mean I'm unwilling, but there would certainly be hesitation. We actually received a call on that front I don't think you were on the show. I think it was John, Jeff, and myself. So we can revisit that a little bit later on. But right now, let's actually turn our attention to our continued draft preview. And Mississippi State is the school that we're going to analyze today and to get more into Mississippi State. In addition to Charles Cross, of course, the rest of the class, we bring in their radio analyst, Matt Wyatt. Matt, you got Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino here on Big Blue Kickoff Live, Giants.com. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope all is well. How are things on your end? Yeah, doing great. Glad to join you guys. Thanks, Thanks, Matt. Absolutely. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the program. And let's start, of course, with Mississippi State's top prospect, somebody that the Giants could very well have interest in, and that is their offensive lineman, Charles Cross, started at left tackle each of the last two years. Matt, when you analyze his pass protection versus his run blocking. I've heard a lot of mixed reviews that some would argue the pass protection is a lot more attractive than the run blocking. How would you best assess his strengths slash weaknesses at each of those facets? 
Yeah, um, to be totally honest with you, I think it, it's it's less of a knock on the run blocking ability, and more so that he played in an offense that they don't know. There ain't a, there's not a lot of tape. <clears throat> there's not a lot of film. Uh, these past two years in the Mike Leach air raid offense, when you look at the numbers, like it's um, you know in terms of actually handing the ball off, even on just basic inside zone runs. Um, it's a drastic drop-off from everybody else in the SEC to Mississippi State. I mean, the ball is in the air constantly. So it's a little bit of a catch-22 because one of the things that helps Charles Cross so much is he has all these numbers of pass-rush snaps in direct one-on-one game situations against SEC pass rushers. He's got so many more examples of that on film than a lot of these other guys because of the offense he plays in that's helping him. It's a big reason why he's a you know possible top-ten pick. But the, the other side of that coin is you don't have a lot of film on him in that three-yard box against uh, you know different schemes in a power run game or even zone stuff. They just haven't done much of it because they don't run the ball in this offense. And so to, to kind of close up the thought, as you introed it, you said, yeah, he started at left tackle for State for the last two years. That's the thing about it. I mean, he's an early entrant into the draft. He's only got really two years of full-time starting. It is in the SEC. So that's the one question mark. You know, if he played another year, if he played in a different offense, you might have a different set of skills on tape to evaluate. Matt, he's already come a long way. I had read that when he got to Mississippi State, uh, he wound up putting on 35 pounds by the time he finally got to be maturity to where he's been a two-year starter on that offensive line. So I'd love to know your perception on his progress from the time he walked on the campus to where he is now, because I think that arrow may give us an indication of not only his learning curve, but how much his upside could continue to grow. Yeah, it's you're absolutely right. And see, again, you know, he's so young. We're only talking about four years ago when he came out of high school and shot up the recruiting rankings when he went to a few of these combine type events and became a five-star recruit. They didn't know much about him because he didn't weigh anywhere near 300 pounds coming out of high school. He's this long, tall, 6'5 kid who needed to put on all this weight to, to fill out the body but showed the footwork and the athleticism, and, and it took him at least a year to do that. Okay, And then once he gets there, uh, you know, here he is, a, a potential first-rounder. So what I would tell you is I think he is different then the other two guys that they talk about at the top of the draft disposition, Neil out of Alabama and Iquanu from NC State, in that Charles has not had the same amount of time in the college weight program that those other two guys have. He is a little younger. He's got more of that development still in front of him than they do. And that's a big difference. But I also think for some teams it's a plus because – and they look at where he is now. He's ready to play right now. He's ready to start at one of your tackle spots right now. And he's still, he's still in, in some ways growing, which is sort of hard to believe. But uh, I think it helps him. There's no question that his best is in front of him. And he's already one of the best in the country. 
One, one follow-up uh, on this, Matt. Uh, there will be some skeptics. I'm not one of them. Let me make that clear because I think his athleticism and his technique is off the charts. They will say, well, if you'd want to move him to right tackle, that could be a little bit of an issue because, again, only two years as a left tackle in school. Yeah. From what you know about him and from talking to the coaches and talking to him, does that seem like it could be a large hurdle? I just don't think it is. Not when you're talking about somebody who that his his biggest attribute is his athleticism. You know, he doesn't run like an offensive lineman. He doesn't move like what you think about some stereotypical offensive lineman. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a challenge for him. Um, and I know that in some of the pro day stuff too. And I got to go watch that. They really worked him on the right side. And there were some people watching that really closely, going, "Okay." Let's be let's be very um, you know precise here in what we're doing and watch him on the other side and they really liked what they saw. I just don't think it's going to be an issue, you know. And there's already a lot of respect too. That's the one thing too, guys. You know, those of us that are coming outside, we we may not be privy to the conversations that happen between evaluators and opposing coaches. But just to give you an example, you know, when he played in that game this year against Alabama. And against Will Anderson, who, you know, maybe the best pass rusher in all of college football come out next year. He had zero snaps in that game where the Alabama coaching staff put Will Anderson directly across from him on that side. None. He had zero one on ones where they lined up with Will Anderson, Alabama putting him intentionally across from Charles Cross. It was a great sign of these opposing coaches the respect they have for him is they kept Will Anderson on the other side the entire night. Not one snap, but they put him over there. It showed you what they thought. A guy that has that much respect in his athleticism, I think coaches, evaluators know you can put him on the other side, and there may be a little bit of an adjustment period, but it ain't going to be long, and he'll get it, and he'll be a good player. We're talking with Matt Wyatt, Mississippi State radio analyst. Matt, I'm glad you brought up the whole dynamics of who he matched up with because I want to follow up with that in terms of, from what I understand, with the way that Mike Leach's offense operated and how they utilized their offensive linemen, they set him up in wide splits. So it seems yeah. as if you really got a good taste of what Cross could do sort of on an island as opposed to yeah. you know being bunched up more often than not. And the reason I bring that up is whether he is on the left side or the right side, depending on what team drafts him, how much film and substance is there, even though it may still be a small sample size, as you pointed, where you did get a good look at him one-on-one -on -one with whatever edge rusher it may be and how he's able to handle himself out in more open space? Yeah, it's, it's a great point you bring up because – it is true that that offense and the way they line up is sort of known for being different in how far those splits are and how far out there those tackles are. And part of it is you're designing it so that if a pass rusher is going to line up on the outside shoulder of that offensive tackle, well, he's a, he's a yard farther away. That's another yard he's got to go before he gets to my quarterback, but it puts all those linemen on an island by themselves. So that's the answer to your question is, just sort of by the nature of the offense, the way they run it in that air raid, he has spent the last two years playing out there on an island by himself. You know, the only time that he's in communication, really, even with that offensive guard, is the occasional inside run 
or when they're picking up twists that come from the inside or the backside of that two-gap twist, which they did see that some, and he did a great job of that. But his entire two-year tape is he's by himself out there. There's no such thing as help, and it's a lot of speed rush off the edge, a lot of wide nine stuff from defensive events trying to get upfield. And uh, he's been so good with it. Alabama showed him so much respect in the game. They didn't put Will Anderson over there. They didn't want to waste him against Charles Cross. You know, against teams like Auburn and Texas A&M, he had uh, phenomenal games against good pass rushers who were going to play a lot of NFL football. And he just kind of showed the feat that every NFL offensive coach is looking for in those edge positions. Matt, the tape doesn't lie. He's got everything that it takes, and I'm with you a thousand percent. I think he belongs right up there with with the other two tackles. My question for you would be the intangibles. What is he like as a teammate? What is he like in terms of his attitude and his work ethic off the field? So those are some of the other things that, you know, the guys would ask him at a pro day or at a combine because that's not seen on the tape. Yeah, that's right. Charles is a very quiet guy. He does not like to talk. He's uh, had to learn, I think, how to be comfortable, uh, you know, answering the questions and, and doing the interviews and stuff because he's just a humble guy. He didn't like to talk much. You can ask his coaches and they'd say, you know, if you hear him say something, you need to listen really closely because he may not repeat it, you know. So uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say shy. He's very confident. He's just not a, not a talker. He's a worker. Uh, his coaches loved him. Mason Miller, the coach there at Mississippi State on the offensive line, you know, he's coached some NFL guys when they were at Washington State, and he really raves about who he was. You know, he would love to have a bunch of guys just like him. He's Charles uh, sort of um, has a reputation in the building of he, he just wants to do football. That's, that's all he wants to do. He doesn't want to fool with anything else. He doesn't want to fool with, you know, when he gets there, he's not going to want to fool with contract this and media that. He just wants to do football. And I think that uh, helps him, too, in the evaluation process. The intangibles are there. And I, I really think that, you know, his best football is in front of him. And what's really cool, there's a tape out there, you know, State played against NC State this past year in Starkville. And you can just go back and watch that game, and you're watching Iquano when they've got the ball, and you're watching Cross when State's got it. And both those guys uh, had <laughs> phenomenal games. Yep. NC State was so left-handed in their run game in that game and really all year to make sure that they're giving Aquino a chance to kind of clear the way. And then Cross was really good. So that would be a fun game to go back and watch if you're evaluating these tackles. It is. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Matt, yep. on a related note to what you were talking about in terms of his personality, because I think when it comes to football and – it's good news when you're not talking about the offensive lineman, right? Whether it be on or off the yeah, field, you don't yeah. usually want to hear from offensive linemen. <laughs> but sometimes maybe coaches or even fans mistaken quietness, to your point, as you described Charles mm-hmm. to a certain degree, with maybe not being engaged in the game, not being somebody that's very passionate about the game. I guess just as a follow-up, why that should not be mistaken with respect to Charles in terms of his desire to study and continue to grow as a player. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, too. There, There is a difference, and sometimes you do mistake it. Oh, a guy's quiet, therefore he doesn't care. I would say, and, and Mason Miller, the offensive line coach at State, too, he would tell you all about this. You go to practice, and Charles wasn't necessarily a quiet guy at practice within his group. Uh, and that's one thing they loved about him last year. Um, in practice, in drills, 
he was the guy who would get sometimes fiery and would sort of rally uh, guys and sort of motivate because I think he, he knew I, I'm the best player on this football team. These guys are looking to me. And when we're in a situation, we're in a drill, we're in 11-11, we've just given up a sack on the other side or we have missed an assignment, I can't just stand here and let it go. I need, you know, and so he's had those times where he'll get, he'll get in guys' faces and in the ear hole out there in scrimmages, and I've seen it, we've all seen it. And then after those moments, you'd come away going, man, that really meant something because you don't see that much from Charles. He's not a guy who's just going to, you know, has a short fuse. If he gets mad, then everybody listens. So the passion is there. He just kind of checked all the boxes from a leadership standpoint in that when he talks, you need to listen. Otherwise, he's working and just follow that example. Again, I think those intangibles are as big a reason as anything else, you know, that's helping him to – move up some draft boards, and be in the conversation in the top ten. All right, Matt, I know we're kind of short on time now, so final question for me. There are two other potential Mississippi State day three prospects who check boxes in terms of their size and their length, but don't necessarily check a whole bunch of others, which is why they would be third-day picks. That would be cornerback Martin Emerson, Jr. and wide receiver Makai Polk. What could you tell us about them that might raise their stock just a little bit and put put them on somebody's radar? I think we may have lost Matt. Oh, we absolutely did lose Matt because I think that dial tone confirms it. We did. So we'll see. Maybe we could get him briefly back on the line to respond to what you asked because I'm interested in, in specifically Polk, who was a transfer from Cal, he played his first two years there, Paul, and then last year in Mike Leach's offense, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, this guy just, like, broke out of his shell and said, hey, I've arrived because, I mean, he set all types of records. He had over 100 receptions and over 1,000 yards and nine touchdowns. So there's no doubt about it. This guy has huge potential. It's just a matter of he doesn't have blazing speed, and there's some questions about his separation. But I like a lot of the intangibles that he brings to the table. So it would be nice to get Matt's perspective on Polk. And then you, ask, you also asked him about Martin Emerson, who they call MJ as a nickname. And he's also a guy who's 6'2", 200, so a lot of length there in terms of what he could bring back to the cornerback position. And we do have Matt on the line. So, Matt, I'll just once again rephrase what Paul asked you about. He was bringing up the two other players, Martin Emerson, who I said was nicknamed MJ, as well as Makai Polk, and the upside potentially for them on the NFL level. Yeah, Emerson, uh, I really believe, is an NFL corner. You know, the size is there, and we were talking earlier about Cross being on an island. Martin really has spent his career on an island. He's been the best corner at State for a couple of years, and he spent this past year, you, you know, the team's really kind of avoiding him. He's had a few spots, but teams that they played really avoided him. And the thing about Martin is he is, he is versatile, too. You know, he's got the size of what you think of a boundary corner, got a short field, he'll play close and then come up and play the run as well. But uh, the ability, he had a 4-4 pro day and has plenty of tape playing man-to-man stuff down the field, plays the ball in the air really well. Uh, so he, he's maybe not a first-day guy, but he'll be on somebody's team and he'll be starting for someone at corner, uh, I believe, his rookie year in the NFL. Now, with respect to Makai Polk, 
I was yeah. talking before we brought you back on the line. A transfer from Cal didn't put up great numbers, and I think part of it was playing time and usage. But, Matt, my goodness. I mean, the season he had this past year at Mississippi State and Mike Leach's offense, I mean, he must have been foaming at the mouth in terms of getting involved in this offense. Why were they able to take advantage of his skill set unlike what we saw at Cal? Yeah, well, again, yeah, so many more opportunities, the ball being in the air. But Makai um, has a tremendous ability to win that 50-50 uh, ball, which you all know, I mean, that's the NFL for you right there. Are you winning those sure. contested 50-50s? And he showed a great ability, just sort of a knack, um, like a great rebounder in basketball to position your body and make sure that you can get two hands on it. Um, he just showed a knack for that. The back shoulder showed a knack for it. And he's 6'3", really long arm. He just catches the football very, very reliable. Um, another feather in his cap is he's tough. You know, there were times that he was so active in getting the ball in so many different ways that he's getting hit a lot. He's getting banged up. And you, he'd pop right back up and keep going. He showed a lot of toughness. So he's so reliable to catch the football. The the top end, he's not a four three guy. He's not going to run past people. But if you're if you're winning uh, a, a majority of those fifty fifties, you don't have to run by people. And so that's why they kept throwing him the ball. And then the only thing I think that you know that probably holds him back in terms of draft status is just you know physically he's got to get bigger, stronger. Mm-hmm. He's pretty. He's a pretty slight guy. He's not. You know, he's certainly not. Um, you know, built like some of the bigger, stronger receivers you see in the NFL right now, but he does have the frame. So a lot of people felt like another year in college, like if he really dedicated himself to his body in the weight room, that would really benefit him. He's not going to do it. Uh, so that's sort of a drawback. He's got to get thicker. He's got to get stronger, and he will. But can he catch a football? There's no question. And he'll have an excellent chance to make someone's team for sure. Yeah, I think the whole catch radius and the length thing is really in his favor. I guess, Matt, the the concern would be you talk about him having to put some beef and strength on his frame. Well, if he's going to play split end, in this league, which is yeah. you know usually where the big tall guys go, they either want more speed, which is kind of an issue there, or at the very least, you better be able to to beat press coverage off the line. How often has he had to get a clean release because there was a guy in his grill? Not much. Yeah, Not and that's much. something he's going to have to learn. Yep. Yeah, I mean, no question. You look at some of these big, you know, physical guys. You know, you think about like an Evans in Tampa and guys like that who are 6'5 and 235 pounds, you know, playing that split in. And, oh, by the way, they are 4'4 four, four guys, right. you know, and they're getting those bumps. He didn't get that in this offense too much because these these defenses, even in the SEC, have so much respect for the way that air raid offense reps the the – the bump man fade and the back shoulder stuff. They rep it so much in this offense. The other defenses were like, we're giving cushion. We're going to play a lot of cover two zone and that type of thing. Make the quarterbacks complete the ball against zone. Cause if you gave them man, they beat it with either back shoulder or the fade. Not many defenses gave you that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he spent the majority of the year seeing, you know, either the, the corner that's in the, the quarter-quarter half coverage where he's a hard corner, but it's not a bump coverage, or cover two corners that are going to let you go and buy him into that hole. 
sure. in the zone coverage. So that's another thing, too. That's another reason that a lot of folks felt like, you know, another year in college is really going to benefit him. Weight room, put more stuff on film, the offense develops more, you get different looks. So he'll have to overcome that, and that'll certainly be a challenge when he gets into camp with someone. He is Matt Wyatt, Mississippi State radio analyst, breaking down what to expect from this class as we inch closer to the 2022 NFL Draft. Matt, can't thank you enough. Greatly appreciate the time and the insight, and we look forward to talking down the road. Thanks again. Terrific stuff, Matt. Thanks Thanks. for having me, guys. All right, thank you. Talk to you soon. You got it. Our pleasure. Some great insight out of Matt Wyatt about Charles Cross, Martin Emerson, as well as Makai Polk, who he was talking about, the wide receiver, and good points about since everybody was so worried about Mike Leach's offense killing you over the top that they made sure to keep everybody in front of them, and therefore a wide receiver may not have been exposed to a lot of press coverage. But in the NFL, you're going to see more of that, and how do you adapt to that? These are the types of questions that all of these executives and scouts need to ask themselves. The numbers may look extremely promising on paper, and it may look great on film, but then all of a sudden you put them in a different environment, it's not necessarily going to translate and pick up where they left off in college. Mm-hmm. So some intriguing prospects out of Mississippi State as we once again get closer to the NFL draft. A few reminders before we move on here. And 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. You could also hit us up on Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat. Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2022 season in addition to ticket savings. Membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seat. Starting at just $100, call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also, don't miss your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games at world-class concerts in 2022 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available, or you can place a deposit for individual games. You can call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. So before we open up the phone lines, Paul, the one other thing that I wanted to get to, the question you posed before we had Matt on, which I said was brought up by a caller a few shows ago, was if you're the Giants and you're contemplating a trade— the group of guys that would still be on the board that would sort of maybe put you more on the fence. Ah, I'm not so sure if I want to give up the prospect regardless of what we get up, we get in return because there's a few good options still around there. And all the names you threw out, I would say warrant heavy consideration as well <laughs> as Ahmad Sauce Gardner, who I would throw into the equation as well. And I mean, I don't really remember you leaving out anybody else because you threw out Kyle Hamilton, you threw out... Thibodeau, and you threw out, I'm assuming Cross, let's say, would still be there at seven in a hypothetical. Well, well Lance, I think Stingley may be in that conversation well, Stingley now. Stingley, too. That was right. That was the other name. Aaron yeah. Wilson just tweeted out a short time ago at LSU Pro Day, he ran a 4-3-7 in the 40-yard dash. <laughs> Can't teach speed. Yep. And I think that will probably ally some of the concerns about that foot thing that he had during the course of last season which, remember, prevented him from doing any of that stuff at the Combine. And and this was a medical issue that was going to have to be resolved if people were going to maintain their grades on him. Well, he just ran a 4-3-7. <laughs> so something tells me that perhaps allays the fears of him not being fully healthy or yeah. at least in football shape. Uh, let, let's just say that. his yes. chances of getting into the top 10 probably improved the tad. <laughs> yes. 
And that's what sometimes it takes, right? You have a guy that didn't take part in much of the season. You're concerned. So then you see him on an individual workout, and he shows you, okay, he clearly has been working out. He's back towards 100%. And then it makes you feel a little bit better if you're going to utilize specifically a high pick. Yeah. And by the way, let me mention that Aaron Wilson is from Pro Football Network, just so you folks know where that's sourced from. That's one of the very well-respected internet sites that uh, that And he's been covering the NFL for quite a long time. time, Long time, but maybe not everybody knows that. So I just wanted to get that out there. Well, and I just wanted to once again revisit that conversation because we were starting that just as we had Matt on. But I think if you have a number of guys that are attractive like that and there's conviction in the room, then you've got to weigh the pros of we bring that guy in year one. He can make a significant impact versus we go into the land of the unknown where we have an extra draft pick. And I understand the argument, well, when you have more resources, you could do more things with that. But once again, you're still digging into the hypothetical of what could happen in the 2023 draft. There's still no guarantees Mm -hmm. that that's going to pan out according to your plan. Well, and then the other thing is if you truly have conviction on the guy being an immediate impact player and a guy who's going to bust out for you right away, be a starter and give you some big time highlight plays. Well then Lance, think about that. You're getting that guy on his rookie contract and you'll also have a fifth year option on him. And there'll be some sense of certainty if, in fact, your your predictions are justified that he is that guy who you believe is going to be that way. As opposed to, well, we're taking a flyer that next year maybe we're going to be in a good spot because we're going to need this and we can get it. And that's there's, my point. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot more certainty. And, and there's nothing wrong with having a blue-chip player, you know, be valuable to you immediately on a cheap rookie deal with the option of that fifth year. That is a wonderful thing to have. Yeah, well, you have essentially done more research, to your point, Paul, on the prospects this year. Of that course. doesn't mean that the scouts are not familiar with the 2023 class, but there's more confidence in the decisions you're going to be making with this year's picks than what you could potentially grab next year, regardless of the buzz mm-hmm. and the upside. So that's why, once again, I'd lean more towards utilizing the fifth and seventh pick on somebody you already studied. And then, as you mentioned, you're going to get not one, but two guys with the fifth year option at five and seven, Paul. That's you're a beautiful have thing. Two players who you can retain the rights of. So, you know, that also makes it a little bit more attractive. Now, to be fair, and I know John and Jeff see it kind of on the other side of that scale, and that's fine. And Peter King, the most well-respected, you know, football writer uh, around the country, has written twice in the last week that he believes the Giants will part with one of those first-rounders that they don't want to take both five and seven. Uh, And that's great. I, I believe Peter's information is as strong as it can be, and I'm not saying that he's wrong. Quite frankly, that may be exactly what the Giants plan to do. I'm simply telling you, and I know you feel the same way, if you are in charge, this is how we would feel. I'm not predicting what the Giants will do. I'm telling you what I think. Yeah, and there's various perspectives to look at, and nobody's right, nobody's wrong. It's just... My philosophy has always been the Giants in comparison to other teams, if you just look at it from a broad perspective, are in need of two guys as high as five and seven coming in this year and making an impact. Mm -hmm. If they were in a different position and they felt a little bit more secure at other positions based on how guys have panned out, I think maybe my philosophy would change. They're in need of 
infusing themselves with the fifth overall pick and the seventh overall pick. No questions asked. Let's open up the phone lines at 201-939-4513. Doug is in Rochester. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Doug? Hey, how you guys doing? Uh, when, when it comes to the fifth and seventh pick, I just pray that uh, Joe Judge and um, Shane and them just go ahead. And well, Joe care. Judge is not yeah. here to make those decisions, unfortunately, Doug, anymore. So that's in the hands of somebody yeah. else. Excuse me? Again. I thought you said Joe Judge. That's what I thought you said. No, Maybe I'm mistaken. I said Joe, I said Joe Shane. Oh, okay. I Brian thought you Gable. said Joe Judge. So my, I, no. thought he, I thought right? he did, Didn't too. did you hear that? I, I did, thought, too. I could have sworn you said Joe Judge. I did, That's too. That's why I reacted well, I to said, that. Okay, okay. I said Joe Shane. Okay, but I hope they have the common sense to take our defensive offensive lineman and an edge rusher. People seem to forget that the Giants gave up 300 points in the last two minutes of, uh, of, uh, of the half. Okay, so I, I'm pretty sure I hope they do it. Now I want to talk about something with you guys don't talk about enough. I think the Giants have been neglecting a position for the last five or six years, and that is the wide receiver position. Okay? You have to, if you're going to get a line for Daniel Jones that, and for him to throw the football, he has to have somebody to throw the football too. Okay? So. I think a receiver is more valuable than a deep back right now because the Giants' offense is, was worse than the defense, and it needs a lot more help. And if you look at Kansas City and Buffalo offense, they had alpha receivers. Okay, they had, you got some. Most teams in the playoffs have two or three receivers. They got they step on the Giants' field. They don't have an alpha receiver. Okay, so. I'm thinking that Shane and Gable are going to pick a 36 pick a receiver, okay? Because well, Doug, they, listen, you're sure. entitled to your opinion, and, and that's fine. But I think you're a little bit off in terms of saying the Giants neglected that position. Because if you look at the facts, they went out and spent big money on Kenny Galladay. They used a first-round pick on a wide receiver last year in the draft in Kadarius Toney. So to say that they've neglected that position, I don't think that's a fair synopsis of what transpired. I think what you're saying is the production has not met the resources that oh, they brought Lance, in. Lance, and that's fair. Kenny Dolliday, Lance, Kenny Dolliday is not a separation receiver. He goes up and grab back. He's more of a... Well, but Kenny Galladay, but Galladay has proven... Receiver. Well, Doug, Doug, we could sit here and classify them all they want, but the bottom line is Galladay, for the contract he got and for what he did when healthy in Detroit, he's proven that he could certainly be a consistent playmaker. Okay, and okay, Tony Lance, has Lance. proven that he can produce based on what he did at Florida. Did he not? Okay, Lance, Lance, I want you to do something right quick. You have a you go to the laptop. Since Odell Beckham left, give me from 2016 to 22 the reception yards of the highest receiver and completion yards, and give, give them to me, and I'll, I'll prove my point. Okay. But I'm not, I'm not arguing. All I'm saying, Doug, you're misinterpreting my – I'm saying that you – your phrase was the Giants have neglected the wide receiver position. And I don't yeah, think that's don't a think fair way a to describe job, things man. based on what they've dedicated resources no. to. Okay, I don't think they did a good job in the last four or five years. Okay, you need, this draft, you need a receiver to come in and catch 60, 70 passes, 600, 700 yards. If you want an offense, like I said, if you look at the teams – that's in the playoffs, 
You got two or three receivers. You have to have a receiver to come in if you want a productive offense. Doug, in fairness, Doug, you also also brought up the two teams you referenced, okay? Because I'm listening very closely to what you're talking about. You referenced the Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs. Who are the two quarterbacks for those teams? Josh Allen and Patrick Wait, wait, does, does, hold on. Does, does the wide receiver does the wide receiver production not synonymous with the play of the quarterback and other facets of the team? Are they not? Let me tell you something. Tyreek Hill helped uh, helped uh, Patrick Mahomes and Stephon Diggs helps Josh Allen. Okay, they both go together. Okay, uh, uh, they uh, uh, they lost Tyreek Hill. You see what they're doing. They're buying two more receivers, and they're going to get another receiver in the draft. That's how important that is to Kansas City. Uh, the Giants have to start looking at the receiver position the same way. You can't have a prolific offense without receivers, receivers that can separate. The Giants don't have that receivers in the camp, okay? So a lot of people are talking about defensive backs and, and cornerbacks and safety. Forget about that. You need to put a receiver on the field. So the offense, you cannot run a, a political offense without receiver. D- Doug, let okay? me help you out here just a little bit, okay? I think you got caught in, in bad semantics because Lance is right when he points out the fact that the Giants have addressed the position. They did sign Galladay. They did sign Ross last year, a speed burner, who, by the way, has the fastest ever combine time in the 40. Okay? So they did address it. They did address it when they drafted Slayton, who started out like a house of fire as a rookie and has now battled injuries and seen his production suffer. By the way, they also, they also, hold on, they also reworked the deal of Sterling Shepard, a proven receiver, one of the better slot receivers in this league for the last five years, reworked his deal. No, reworked his deal so. so that they could keep him. So to say they didn't address it, Lance is a thousand percent correct. They've addressed no, the position, no, no. but maybe the production hasn't been to your satisfaction. So exactly. on that point, you lose. Now, your other point, I agree with you on. Should the Giants be looking in this draft, which is very deep in wide receiver, and I think Lance will agree, it's very deep in wide receiver, should they be looking to enhance their depth chart and potentially grab one at some point in this draft, maybe even as high as the third round. Could I see that? Sure, I could. That's right. Some people got to take a look. All right, so we're not, we're not, we're not well, butting seven, heads with right? you. We're not butting heads with you over the fact that the Giants very easily could take a receiver in this draft, but I don't think it's going to be the first or second round. No, I think it's going to be – you don't value the receiver. See, you by you saying that, Paul, you don't value the uh, – No, what I'm telling you field. is – what I'm telling you is everyone that I have talked to has told me this receiver class is so deep, you're going to get guys who are really, really good in the third round and probably uh, the fourth uh, round. So why you should believe, you? So why you should you that. overdraft a guy if you don't have to grab okay, one early? Okay. Why? Okay, you're going to get you're going to get a Garrett Wilson in the third round. You, you just, uh. come on. He's serious. You're going to get a couple of third round. Be serious, man. You, that's, that's the problem with the Giants now. Thinking they can get something and, and lay around. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Before we let you go, you know? before we let you go, because yeah, we're going exactly to we're gonna have to move on. Here's the thing. If you draft a receiver at five or seven, and who knows, maybe they'll wind up doing it and they'll they'll make us look foolish. 
But, Jamar, but here's the thing. Jamar, if you don't get yourself, if you don't get yourself an offensive okay? line, you're not going to be able to throw to anybody. Get get that through your head. Get that through your head. I said 36 pick. A sky more. Okay. 36. 30, 36. 36. Maybe a spot where you might think about it. I still think it's too high because the draft is deep in receiver. But you know what? But but you know what? Deep in receivers. But you know what? There you go. If they're undrafted receivers and they're in the third or fourth round, that is a reason why they're there. Okay? Okay? That's the reason why they're there. It's a difference. That's the reason why. If they were so good as a first round or second round, the Bucks would be in the first or second round. Okay? That's been the Giants' problem. They have to stop with Joe Shane and Brian Gable. I'm pretty sure they don't right. think like All right. that. Have, have a good day. We'll, we'll check it out. In, we'll check it out in three weeks. Lance, I don't think there's any help there. <laughs> no. Well, the point I was going to make was, and we've had this conversation more often than not, is there are plenty of quality wide receivers that have been taken over the last few years, Paul that have gone in the second and the third round and have had an impact. So I dispute the fact that you have to take a wide receiver in the first round in order to get the return that Doug is arguing. And he utilizes the the examples he's bringing up. Jamar Chase, who is an extremely (laughs) unique wide receiver. And we all knew he was going to be a top three pick, by the way. And then he utilizes, as I pointed out, he utilized the Bills and the Chiefs as the framework of his argument when the quarterback performance, Paul, I was bringing up, had a lot to do with what Buffalo did. And if you want to tell me Stephon Diggs, who they traded for, they didn't draft Stephon Diggs. Let's make that crystal clear. But Cole Beasley and Gabriel Davis, those guys weren't huge resource wide receivers. And they produced. Maybe the only thing that we should have done is asked him, where one of the most dynamic wide receivers in Giants history, Victor Cruz, was drafted. Maybe that would have been the appropriate question to ask him because the answer is he wasn't. Correct. He was undrafted. Yeah. Undrafted rookie free agent who became one of the most spectacular explosive game breakers that this franchise has ever had. So you don't have to use a number one to get one. And there's tons of other examples, even unrelated to the New York Giants, is my point, Paul where there's been quality guys brought in in the later rounds or undrafted, as you mentioned. But what my problem with the premise of his phone call was he was neglecting to look at the fact that the quarterback and other facets are going to impact the wide receiver position. For example, okay, and I like to go outside the Giants bubble, Paul, for a reason, because I feel like some fans, they just live in the Giants bubble. You bring in another example, you're like, oh, well, that team dealt with that. The Chicago Bears, okay, Allen Robinson. Paul, who just joined the L.A. Rams, okay? This past season, and he was on the franchise tag, Robinson didn't put up his typical numbers, right? Mm-hmm. He had a good season. He didn't have a fantastic season. Well, why didn't Allen Robinson put up great numbers? If the argument is great wide receivers, Paul could be the eraser, right? How many times do you hear that? They can make up for all of the other shortcomings. Well, why didn't Allen Robinson do that for the Bears offense this year? Well, maybe it had something to do with the fact that there was not stability at the quarterback. You had Andy Dalton in the lineup. You had Justin Fields. You had a rookie quarterback. You had some offensive line question marks. You didn't have a power running game. So, therefore, Allen Robinson's going to get more attention. He's not going to be able to do the things that he did in previous years when he was freed up. So, it's not just the Giants, but I'm bringing the Giants back into the conversation. And there were a lot of things that went wrong. Don't get me wrong, but the quarterback performance— 
contributed to the lack of production by the receivers, the offensive line. Okay, all of those things you have to consider as to why Kenny Galladay and Kadarius Toney, who also couldn't stay on the field, there's a reason why those guys didn't produce. No arguments from me, Lance. Yeah. We're, we're no, on, and I we're, wasn't we're, looking we're, to battle you in any regard. <laughs> we're yeah. on the same page Correct. here, 1,000%. Look, I will just leave you with this before we sign out. Um, I've, I've got a good feel for what may be as many as six first-round wide receivers in this draft, and then maybe even another six in the second round, and another six in the third round, and another six in the fourth round. All guys who have really sweet grades on them. This is a very thick tomato patch. Can I use that fool analogy to sneak it in before we say goodbye? That's why I'm surprised you didn't go to pasta, but you went to something related <laughs> to pasta. So I'll give you credit for that. So, so yes. with, with that kind of depth at the position, I'd like to think that Doug could calm down just a bit. Yeah, and once again, hopeful that some of the guys that were banged up last year will also stay healthy and improve talent around the quarterback and the improvement of the quarterback yeah. and help elevate their production as well. He's assuming that Kenny Galladay does not have another 1,000-yard season in him. You know, this guy did go to the Pro Bowl. Yeah. I mean, he, he was a top-notch guy. And that's why, just real quick, to just sum things up, I understand where he was coming from, but, Paul, there's a distinct difference between saying the Giants didn't do their due diligence in mm -hmm. utilizing resources at that position versus you're not happy with the level of production from those resources. No doubt. And it's more of the latter than the former when it comes to the Giants. And I just wanted to make sure that we made that crystal clear. We're not campaigning to say everything is rainbows and lollipops, okay? No. Production-wise. No, but don't tell me that the resources have not been brought in to help the cause. Two different things. All right. With that being said, it's time to wrap up Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live with a few fireworks at the end of the program. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadows. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest. We'll be back up and running again for Thursday's edition as we'll continue to preview the upcoming draft. And a reminder that today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live is part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest, and we will speak to you on Thursday for the next edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one.